Hi, everyone. This is the Lead from the Heart podcast team sharing a quick and exciting announcement that Mitel Networks, a global telecommunications firm based in Canada, is our new program sponsor. At Mitel, they believe that truly transformative change starts with a company culture, and that culture depends on courageous, empathetic, and inspiring leadership. Lead from the Heart is helping leaders realize their full potential to better serve their employees and ultimately their customers. If you'd like to learn more about Mitel, you can find them at mitel.com. That's M-I-T-E-L dot com. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Sometimes it bears repeating that the stress and strain of all we've experienced these past two years of the COVID pandemic is incomparable to any previous time in our lives. That we've all gone through the exact same experiences is truly remarkable. And that's true whether you live in New York, San Francisco, London, Toronto, Sydney, Mumbai, or anywhere else in the world. And one thing's for sure, besides taking many human lives, the pandemic has undermined our plans and way of life. And it's forced us to live with much greater uncertainty about the future, a condition that's already proven to be hard on many people. According to Gallup, we're experiencing negative emotions at record rates. These include anxiety, depression, and anger. Shockingly, on any given day, says Gallup, a quarter of the world's population is experiencing anger. So today, we're going to be discussing ways you can better manage these emotions, not to mention all of the ambiguity you're faced with today and will continue to face for the unforeseeable future. My guest is Brad Stolberg author of the new bestseller, The Practice of Groundedness. To be grounded is to possess a firm and unwavering foundation, a resolute sense of self from which deep and enduring success can flow. And this, my friends, is the ideal state of being from which to operate, not to mention from which to lead and manage others. Brad uses the word practice in his book's title, a clear hint that becoming grounded isn't something achieved with the blink of an eye, but rather by employing tools and disciplines on a daily basis to get you there. It takes a huge commitment, but the rewards will be profoundly life-changing should you adopt them. One of my favorite previous podcast guests, Harvard Business School professor Francis Fry, introduced me and us to the word wobble, which means to move unsteadily in the world. And of course, none of us wants to be wobbling in our lives. We all want to be steady and stable, rock solid, even in the worst of times. So how do any of us become this self-secure and capable of responding successfully to whatever the universe throws at us? Well, the answer is to become far more grounded. And the next hour is devoted to teaching you how you can get there. And with that as background, let me welcome you to the podcast, Brad Stolberg. Hey, Mark, it's great to be talking with you today. Brad, as we get started, let me set the table as I see it. Over the past 20 months or so, the COVID pandemic has undermined our plans and our way of life, partially in response to the isolation and the disconnection that we've all been experiencing. We now see elevated rates of addiction, anger, depression, anxiety, and loneliness. And all of this malaise may be a consequence of the frustration that people feel when they can't control the outcomes of their lives, something that some have yet to realize was illusory all along anyway. So over these same 20 months, however, other people have found in themselves a tremendous resilience by in effect aligning themselves to what is in their lives rather than wishing things were different. 
So this is by definition what's called groundedness. And so I wanted to start there. Tell us why you believe so many of us are feeling especially wobbly right now and the benefits of becoming more grounded as you see it. Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Life has all kinds of different weather patterns. And we're very fortunate that for most people, I assume most of your podcast listeners here in the the 21st century, there aren't that many acute threats to our health and to our way of life. And between the COVID-19 pandemic, political unrest, not just in America, but in many countries in the Western world, suddenly that stability that we'd all been feeling didn't feel so stable anymore. And when the external weather around you is frenetic and frantic, that's all the more important to try to cultivate some internal stability so that instead of getting blown around at 95% based on what's happening, maybe you only get blown around at 45% based on what's happening. I like that. (laughs) <laughs> I'd like the numbers to be better, though, you know, but nevertheless, it does seem that the timing for, you know, what you're talking about is pretty right because people have gotten through, you know, these past 20 months and I think are sort of figuring out that they don't want to be a, a flag that's being blown back and forth without any control over it. And I, I use the word control, which, of course, is what I don't believe we have. There's an alignment to accepting what is. Is that also a part of your message? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you can be grounded if you can't be where you are. And a part of being where you are is taking stock of what's happening in an honest way. Because if you tell yourself a too rosy story, or you get a little bit delusional, or you see the world through a very biased lens then you'll never actually make much true progress because in order to make progress, you've got to be working on the thing that actually needs working on. So in the case of the pandemic, I think particularly when things were looking a lot better a few months ago, people got very comfortable, including myself and my family. COVID was basically zero where we live. And then the Delta variant came in and suddenly it's back. And I found that the sooner that people could accept that that is what was happening, the more resilient they were, and then the better able they are to take productive actions to to do something in their lives, to make them feel good, to buffer their business, to make sure that they and their families feel safe and secure versus other people that went into a little bit more of a denial or resistance mode. So before I could be interested in becoming more grounded, What's the mindset that I need in order to meet you where you are? I think an openness to making some fairly significant behavior changes that take your mind out of the frenetic environment of the world, particularly the internet, and resituate it in your body, in your local community, where you actually are. Why don't you extend on that by defining what you mean by groundedness? So I think of groundedness as the foundation from which any kind of health, well-being, sustainable peak performance emerges. So much like a redwood tree that is massive and tall, you don't get any of the beautiful overstory or the enormous solid trunk without a strong root system. 
And that root system is underground. You don't see it. But it's that root system that nourishes the entire tree. And the principles that I write about in the book are that root system. So what is going to make a solid foundation in your life? Acceptance, patience, presence, vulnerability, community, and some sort of physical movement. Without these things, when everything is clicking and the external circumstances are good, you're totally fine. But when things start to get rough, then that tree starts to shake. And if those roots aren't strong, you begin to feel unmoored. So we're going to dig into this a lot in a moment here. But before we go on, tell me how you got into writing this. Like, I don't usually ask that question because it seems so tedious, to be honest with you. You know, it's like, well, tell us about your book. That's not where I'm going with this. It's really what's the life journey that took you to writing a book on groundedness? Yeah, I I got pretty sick with obsessive compulsive disorder, which is an often misunderstood mental illness. People hear OCD and they think of a neat freak or someone that is very organized. And if you could see my desk right now, you would very quickly know that I certainly don't have that um, problem. (laughs) But um, it's actually a really bad anxiety disorder and it can latch on to all different kinds of themes. And When that happened to me, I felt unmoored, like the ground beneath me was completely shaking. And once I got on the other side of that enough that I could start to think intellectually about it, of course, it raised the question, well, if I get a chance to kind of rebuild a foundation, what's the best way to build it? And at the same time that I was going through that and thinking about that question, many of my coaching clients were also reporting various symptoms of restlessness or anxiety or burnout or just the sense that they felt like everything around them was swirling out of control. And this was even before COVID. So not only was I asking this question and not only had I experienced a feeling of being unmoored, but so many of the people that I work with had too. And when those two things hit at the same time, as a writer, that tells you that there's something there. And of course, as the book details, I mean, there's a lot that is individual. And then there's also a lot about the world that we live in that can lead folks to become quite unmoored. You know, you said that all of this happened to you before COVID, which is a point that, you know, I was thinking about when I was reading your book, which is that COVID wasn't the reason that people are feeling so much more anxiety and distress and even anger, which we know is, you know, accelerating rapidly all around the world right now. Gallup shows that at least 25% of the world's population is feeling angry on any given day, which is not a good thing for society. But that COVID really tipped us into this, that we were already wobbling. But when COVID hit, it was like, I can't take any more of this, which brings us back to your work, which I think if you don't have practice of grounding yourself and multi-pronged as we're going to talk about this. I think this explains why people are just completely beside themselves and don't know how to handle it and their emotions are going wild. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So nearly all the world's ancient wisdom traditions emphasize the importance of cultivating groundedness as a means of taming our minds and successfully maneuvering through the ups and downs of human existence and really developing true internal strength. 
So it makes me wonder, though, if COVID is opening hearts and minds to this wisdom, which then will have great influence over workplace leaders. So in other words, it's going to bubble up and influence how we manage people. So I want to know if you agree with that and what's your projection? Well, I think that as you were alluding to, I like to think of COVID as an accelerator. So a lot of trends that were already underway, COVID has simply intensified. And I think that it is a, I'm going to give you a non-dual answer here. On the one hand, I think that the pandemic has and continues to make people realize how fragile life is and how much they miss the ability to connect in person in a way that we were accustomed to and to be situated in community. And I think that once things settle into a new stability, then there is a part of me that hopes that people rush back to that and realize what we've taken for granted. That's the optimist. The pessimist in me worries that COVID has made such an impact on people's seeking connection and community and groundedness on the internet that even once the pandemic is gone, or if it's never gone, again, once we achieve stability somewhere new is probably more accurate to say, that people will continue to kind of just live disconnected from themselves in their actual communities. And I can't tell you which way it's going to go. I'm doing everything I can to try to educate people on the value of the former and the risks of the latter. But Facebook is making a huge bet on the metaverse, which is a lot closer to the latter as far as I understand it. Wow. Well, coincidentally, yesterday I had an article published in Fast Company magazine. And the premise is that too much of working from home has all sorts of negative implications, not just for people individually vis-a-vis losing real true human connection with people. But ultimately, businesses are going to suffer and society at large is going to suffer. So I've been getting, you know, sort of the yin and yang, if you will, of responses. So you wouldn't be surprised that employers are sending me messages saying, right on, we needed to hear this. And then you've got a whole group of people that never want to go back to the office And so, and they're saying, you're arguing on behalf of, you know, big brother, if you will. And and I'm really not. There's science that shows that without connection, we're in real trouble from a health standpoint, from a mental health standpoint, all of that. So interestingly, somebody tweeted me and said, you're getting reamed on Reddit. And so I went on Reddit and there's like 250 comments that people have made about this article. And you can see that it's attracting the people that disagree with me, which is totally fine. But to your point, Brad, what concerned me was the lack of interest in connecting with people. They were like, who do I care about connecting with people? I connect with them fine. And if I need to, I can go on Slack. Like none of it's human, none of it's real. And that sort of reinforces your latter point. And I'd like to stay optimistic. I also think that loneliness is a function. When we feel lonely, we're being told by our body, if you will, that you got to go out and be with people. So I think long-term, enough of us will want to be around people, but there's probably going to be plenty of them that are going to be totally fine living in the metaverse of Facebook, which does frighten me too. 
Right. I mean, I think that the first mistake that you made is to go on to Reddit and read the forum. So um, you're a braver person than I am. (laughs) But in all seriousness, it's a topic that I, I think about a fair amount. And I don't think that there's anything right or wrong with remote work per se. I think that if somebody has to commute an hour to work each day and they get that time back, and they invest in their local community and they get more involved in neighborhood associations and volunteer work or their children's schools, then I actually think it can be really positive. If people get those two hours back and they just wake up an hour earlier and look into their phone and respond to email and post on Facebook, then it's going to be enormously detrimental. If I was building a company right now I and what I counsel lots of my entrepreneur coaching clients that are are in situations where they're reevaluating their policy. I think that a hybrid approach makes a lot of sense. As you point out, there is incontestable evidence that a lot of innovation is driven by serendipity, that it's a lot easier to build psychological safety and true trust and connection in person. So I think a world without any in-person working together will be a substandard world in terms of performance and more importantly, in terms of how people feel. That said, I think there are a lot of benefits to being able to work from home. I think that lazy companies will probably go all in in one or the other direction. And it's a lot harder to try to find a middle ground. But I think that what we'll see is organizations that do find a middle ground will ultimately win. I'm in 100% agreement. And the point that I made wasn't that we shouldn't be having people work from home. My argument was that we should be allowing people to work from home principally, but that there needs to be time where everybody is in the office on the same day at the same time so that you can make that connection with your team. That, in effect, is what allows you to leverage technology to work remotely. And interestingly, there's new research that just came out yesterday that showed that And people admitted to this. So this isn't conjecture. This is people saying, I've lost trust in my colleagues Mm -hmm. the longer that I've been working from home. So it's just, there's so much evidence. And this is a point that I didn't even make in the article, but we're in total agreement on, on that. So let's talk about what scientists call motivated reasoning, what you wrote about the human propensity to see things not as they actually are, but instead as we wish them to be. So when we want things to be different than they are and it doesn't happen, we set ourselves up for great disappointment and distress. But when we actually accept where we are in any given moment and directly face our problems, as you sort of hinted at a moment ago, we're far better off and better able to resolve and move on from them. So tell us more about the importance of accepting where you are in both a personal and leadership context, if you can. Right. So I think that it's the same regardless if you're thinking about it personal or leadership. I think the context might be different. So is this something in your own life, in your own family, with yourself, or is this something with your organization, your team, your colleagues? But it's so helpful to create some space between what's going on out in front of you and yourself, particularly in highly charged emotional situations. Because as you said, there's all this scientific research that shows that we're motivated to see things as we want them to be. And researchers call the practice of creating this space self-distancing. And one of my favorite ways to do it is to pretend that a close friend or colleague is in the same situation as you 
and then give advice to that close friend or colleague. And then you have to take that advice yourself. And it is shocking that researchers will find that so often, again, the more highly charged the topic, the more so this is the case. The advice that people give to a friend is not what they've been doing themselves. So it's all about creating some space so that you can see these situations more clearly. So I love the exercise. What's your experience when you turn the tables on people and say, you know, what advice would you give to a friend? And then they tell you what advice they would give and you realize it's patently inconsistent with what they're doing. And so you say, okay, now you have to accept that advice for yourself what percentage of people say, oh, you're right, I'm going to implement exactly what I just told I would do for a friend? Or do they say, well, that's for my friend and not for me? In my coaching practice, very high go and implement it. I mean, they pay me money to hold them accountable. Yeah, so you've got high motivated people. What's your sense? Do most people, when they have that opportunity to consider what they would give as advice to a friend, do most people use that logic to say, you know, I'm right about what I just told this friend of mine and I should adapt this as well. Yeah, I can't put a number on it. I see what you're saying. Is there a tendency for some people to perhaps be like, well, I'm different or this situation is different? That's my question. Yeah, of course. And I think that it gets you a lot closer to accepting where you are in making a wise decision and seeing clearly than not going through the exercise. And I think a lot of people do change their behavior. A lot of athletes that I work with, when they become injured, often try to push through their training when deep down inside they know they shouldn't. And this exercise works like gold for them because hmm. they envision a training partner as hobbling out the door with a torn hamstring to go try to run. And they tell that training partner, you're nuts. Just take a few extra days off to let this heal up so you don't make it worse. And then, of course, I smile and say, all right, well, then you've got to have the confidence to take that time off too. Very cool. I like that. You tell the story and I think you, I forget, did you have an article in the Wall Street Journal where you excerpted your book? Did I read it there? I did. Okay. So I think I read it there first. And then of course it's in the book and it's something that I was familiar with and hadn't read in a really long time. And it actually just pins this whole thing down for accepting where you are. There's this Buddhist parable that you write about that teaches to never let an arrow hit you twice. That's the setup. Can you tell the story? Because it's really, as I read it, I thought this is something that every leader needs to understand. I mean, certainly we need to understand it in our personal lives, which is, I'm going to let you tell the story. The, the premise is that accepting where you are and starting from that point, as opposed to cursing the gods for your fate, is a much better and enabling position to be in when you're having to make tough decisions or respond to a crisis, et cetera. So with that, tell the story. Right. So it's one of my favorite parables. And the first arrow is something that happens externally or internally. Could be a thought, feeling, illness, could be a pandemic, democratic backslide, climate change, all number of things. The second arrow is your repression, denial, judgment, rumination about that thing. And what ancient Buddha's wisdom taught is that it's the second arrow that actually hurts worse than the first. And so often in our own lives, we sit there firing second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh arrows at ourselves. Instead of just accepting the painful thing, feeling that pain, and then getting on with the show and taking the most productive action that we can. And you see this in big corporations with leaders all the time. 
Like one way in corporate world to fire second, third arrows at yourself is to round yourself with yes people who only say yes and tell you what you want to hear. Because then you get like group delusion. Whereas someone that can say to their CEO, like that's a batshit crazy bad idea. Okay, well that first arrow hurts, but then you don't get in trouble for fraud or something down the road because you're dealing with the thing right when it happens. I like it. It's a really powerful story. So thank you. We'll leave it there. A very hard lesson for me to have learned in my own life was the need to be kind to myself while struggling with anything, any challenge. When something wasn't going well, my tendency was to be hard on myself. And while she was specifically giving this advice to writers in her book, Bird by Bird, writer Anne Lamott. Great book. Yeah, I know that book. Fantastic, fantastic book. She advised that we must, this is her language, she said, be militantly on your own side. And I don't know what, Brad, but when I read that, it was like it tipped me for the first time in my life. It was like, be militantly on your own side. And just a sort of a reminder that if you can't be, then how could you expect anybody else to be? And so talk about self-compassion. You wrote about it, why it's important. I'm sure you're teaching your, your clients. I hate to say it this way, but it doesn't always seem very masculine to be self-compassionate on the surface. And that's complete crap. But nevertheless, that's kind of the mindset many of us have. So speak to all that. Right. Well, I think the easiest way to speak to it is if you want to do really hard things, that requires a lot of self-discipline. In self-discipline, in doing hard things, there is failure inherent to that process. You cannot do hard things with self-discipline and not fail from time to time. And if when you fail, you beat yourself up or you judge yourself too harshly, one, you're more likely to stop doing whatever you're doing because it's no fun to fail and then get upset with yourself about it. And two, even if you keep going, you're wasting all this time in psychic energy, ruminating and beating yourself up. The best way to stay self-disciplined and do hard things is to marry self-discipline with self-compassion. Because then when you fail, you can say, oh, that sucks. I dropped the ball. I didn't wake up for my workout. I made the wrong decision. Whatever it is, learn from it, get back on the path and start walking again. It completely eliminates all the nonsensical garbage that happens in between falling down, getting back up and going. So what self-compassion really does is it allows you to get back up and get going a lot faster and a lot more sustainably because no one likes hanging out with assholes all the time. <laughs> Why should you be an asshole to yourself? Right. Yep. Well said. Very glad I asked that question because you're very succinct and that really nails it. Ram Das famously said, be here now, meaning always keep your attention on the present moment. This is another element of groundedness. So why is this so important? So it is so important to be here now, as Ram Das so elegantly said, because this is all that there is. And we, as a human species, have a tendency to be very forward-looking. So we get really excited about goals or activities out in front of us. But if we're constantly just out in front of ourselves then our whole lives can pass us by without experiencing the fulfillment and satisfaction of actually being in the present moment. Now, it's really hard to do. 
right? If you have a big deal, it's supposed to close in a month, you're probably struggling to pay attention day to day because you're waiting to get ahead to the next month. No one's going to be perfect on this, but the goal is to spend a little bit less of your time out in front of yourself and more where you are. Because again, it is in the present moment. Like that is our life. You know, if you climb a mountain for a year and a half and you finally get to the top, you're going to be on the peak for 0.0000001% of the whole journey. But the process, the climb up, might as well be there for it because that's it. Like that's all that there is. Another analogy that I like to use is an Olympian. Uh, Olympic cycle is four years. Most Olympians start training long before the cycle when they're young for their first Olympics. If you win a gold medal, the national anthem takes about two minutes. Most people have probably put in 12 to 13 years. So if all you're doing is thinking about that gold medal and living out ahead of yourself, then in a way you've kind of blown 12 or 13 years (laughs) of your life. Mm -hmm. Those are perfect examples. So thank you. One part of the discussion that I've been really looking forward to that you mentioned in your book is background. I've spent a lot of time with very high achieving people in my life. And one thing that you write about is this idea that many people like this high achieving have a very hard time ever being satisfied. And at its worst, they routinely feel as if they're never enough. And that drives them to keep producing without honoring all they've already accomplished. And so I just wondered, I won't give too much around this, but I'm part of a group of people who are like this, like specifically very high achieving. And before reading your book, I had the assessment and being with them and talking to them that this is a group of people that's never happy, not happy in the sense of happiness, but happy in the sense of what they produced. It's like, as soon as this is done, I got to move on to the next one. I got to get another one. It's never enough. And so I'm wondering, how big of a problem is this? Is it isolated to high achieving people? Is it common of all of us? And how do you help people reclaim their worth and value? Right. I I think that a little bit is definitely part and parcel of being a pusher or a high achiever because that's you got to stay hungry. I think that, again, if you think of this on a spectrum, 100% hungry all the time, never enough doesn't feel so great. As you said, like there's not a lot of joy in happiness. 50% hungry, 50% having fun, finding joy, patting yourself on the back. To me, that's a lot better and more sustainable balance. And the stories are always told of the famous athlete or CEO or artist with a chip on their shoulder, never satisfied crushing it. And there are just as many stories of people like that that burn out. Actually, there's a lot more stories Mm -hmm. people like that Mm -hmm. that burn out. Absolutely. There are also high performers that are hungry, but they also know how to have fun along the way and to take a minute or two to enjoy successes. Because when the going gets rough, like, what do you have to look back on? If you never stop to enjoy your success, then what's the point? So this isn't about numbing drive or getting rid of hunger. It's about pushing really hard, but being present be where you are, as you said, and having some fun along the way. And I think that the best way to do this is just to find activities that energize you and throw yourself into those things and try to eliminate distractions. And presence shouldn't always be such a hard thing. When I'm deep in the flow of writing, I'm totally present. When I'm at my gym doing a hard deadlift session, I'm present because I love that stuff. Now, I don't bring my phone with me when I write or to the gym because that's a distraction. So you know, unpacking this esoteric thing of presence and be here now and joy, 
and making it really concrete, it's like identify the things in your life that you think will satisfy you and give you fulfillment and then schedule time to do them and leave behind the distractions. It's really as simple and as hard as that. What about just taking time to celebrate what you've accomplished? Like literally saying, this is going to be a celebration. Like I'm stopping the clock to take this moment to acknowledge that I just wrote this book or I, I just got this promotion or whatever. So that tying all this together, that you're truly present in the accomplishment and you're validating the fact that it's been accomplished. I mean, I spent the summer writing a second edition of my book. And when I got done, I just immediately started going back to the work that I needed to get done during the four months that I was writing. And I didn't take that moment. And I realized like, no, this is really bad. So I literally stopped and went back and just sort of spent a couple of days just sort of marinating in the fact that, hey, I just accomplished something that's really important, something I wanted to do, something that felt oppressive at the beginning, something that proved that I could actually pull this off, all those kinds of things going through my mind. But I took that time. And I think that's a big part of this. Is that something you coach your own people to do? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll prove the point by I'm, I'm very confident in how you'll answer. So we'll just do this live on the air. <laughs> how did you feel during that time? After that time and when you got back to your next big project. During what time specifically? The time that you took off to just revel in the accomplishment. Oh, it was pretty wonderful, actually. My nature is to be very much like this. I don't have a problem with value and worth. What I have is like overdrive of, okay, that's done. Move on to the next thing. And giving myself that time just to sort of say, hey, I did this. Like, And I had a deadline. My publisher gave me 100 days to do it, which at the beginning seemed completely crazy. And I beat the deadline. And even then, the next day, I was working on something else without truly acknowledging it. So to your point, it felt different to me to do it, but it also felt totally wonderful. Like I really savored it. Yeah. And then what about when you got back to work? Even more. Like I was so grateful that I had taken that time because you can always consume yourself with work, right? Yes. So you just told me that it felt pretty good patting yourself on the back. You're probably, whatever time you lost in doing that, your efficiency and productivity when you got back probably is triple what it would have been because you gave yourself that little break that it's a home run. Why wouldn't you do something that both makes you feel good and better? Now, I'm not talking about like taking a year off and smoking cigars every day for a few months. I know what you're saying. I'm just making it clear for listeners. This is about the person that like finishes the book and starts writing the next one. Take two freaking days. Like if you don't have a substance use disorder, like have a bourbon. If you do go meditate, like just do something for yourself that can be put a smile on your face. Wow, I did that. Two days, maybe three. But it sounds crazy saying that. But so many people that are type A and driven and high achieving don't do that. And then they come to my coaching practice or they pick up the book feeling burnt out. And it's like, no wonder you feel burnt out. You never take time off to rest. You never find joy in the accomplishments. And you're constantly thinking ahead of yourself. I think that that's like the condition of most Americans in the 21st century, to be honest. Well, this is why I wanted to devote some time to it and why I was looking forward to it, because I happen to agree with you. And by the way, I don't think I gave myself more than two days. There's like a limit to what I can give myself, which is full disclosure. But truly, I allowed myself the moment. I took it in. I accepted it. And I had a bourbon. And But then when I got back to work, I was exactly like you said. I just like, okay, I've given myself that. I feel it's like an accelerant. 
to use your word earlier, you know, this idea that I just accomplished this becomes a catalyst simply because I celebrated it and I acknowledged it. And now I'm moving on. And the burnout component is, I think, something that I learned the hard way. So it's good that you're coaching your people. But I think this is true for many of us. It's like we always think we have to prove ourselves on some level and we don't. And I think we become more productive, more accomplished when we take those breaks. And I'm really parroting everything you've just said. Love it. <laughs> All right. Not that long ago, researchers put people into an empty room for 15 minutes. I've read this before and it just cracks me up every time, but it's also really disturbing. So they put people into an empty room for 15 minutes without anything to distract them. So no magazines, no phones, nothing. And the researchers gave them two options. You can wait in the room by yourself for 15 minutes in quiet. Or if it becomes too much for you, you can shock yourself with a strong electric current and get yourself out of this. Yeah. And as you write cleverly, the results were literally shocking. 67% of men and 25% of women chose to shock themselves to end the wait. You call this a lack of patience. But for me, it was much more than that. It was like, People can't sit by themselves for 15 minutes without needing to shock themselves to get out of their own minds. What's that about? It's pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think that, again, we live in this 21st century where there's so much stimulation and so much coming at us always that we can become addicted to speed and to and just to novelty. And when you take that away, well, like any other addiction, when it's removed, you feel withdrawal. And the way that we handle that withdrawal is we reach for our phones. So when the phone's not there, got to do something. So I'll shock myself. Don't get me wrong. It is shocking. Like you can, t I can sit here and tell a story like I'd expect it, but I, it's not just clever writing. I was truly shocked by those results. I was too. Yeah. Maybe I would have thought like 10% of people, which still would have seemed crazy. Um, but I really think that's it. And that's why I put it in the patience chapter. Cause you know, like you say, it's about getting out of your head, which you could argue is about being present. But for me, it's really about the waiting and the boredom. And a part of patience is being okay with waiting and being bored. Sometimes you don't get creative ideas when you're scrolling on your phone, you get creative ideas when you mind wander. But how do we get there? How do we get to this? So you got to put boundaries around it. So it's like what I write in the book, just start small. Uh, if you walk your dog and normally you bring your phone or listen to a podcast, don't. When you leave the car to go to the grocery store, don't bring your phone. All my freaking coaching clients, well, my list is on my phone. Well, guess what, Lucinda? You can write your list on a sheet of paper and bring in that sheet of paper. Like it's not about the list. It's about the phone. I have a good colleague and friend, Ed Bautista, a fellow coach, and he says that phones are like adult pacifiers. So it's no different than a baby. You've got to wean yourself. And it's hard. I, I go through this myself. Coming out of a book launch, I spent a lot of time on my phone. I'm texting with my agent, my publisher, my collaborative partner, friends. Yeah, but this isn't all about phones. This is about being unable to sit with yourself for 15 minutes. Yeah, I could say, well, I want to get to my phone, but that's not the only reason people can't sit by themselves is the demand of the phone. I know. I think it is. I, what I'm not saying is it's the demand of the phone. What I'm saying is people use the phone as a crutch to escape. And the only way that you can train yourself to be with yourself is to eliminate those crutches and just feel what you feel. And most people, when they do this, again, like a child being weaned off a pacifier, you feel anxiety at first. 
But eventually things open up and you feel a lot more free and secure in yourself. I'm not asking about the crutch. I'm asking why we have a need to escape our own selves for 15 minutes. Because <laughs> our minds are freaking crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's like anyone that's ever been a beginner at meditation understands that those first couple months of practice are really not very pleasant. So, okay. But that goes back to groundedness and to meditation. So we haven't talked about that yet, but how important is that in groundedness, in your opinion? It doesn't have to be meditation, but some kind of contemplative practice where you learn to quiet your mind and to see thoughts as thoughts and feelings as feelings and not react to them is absolutely instrumental to that inner stability that groundedness cultivates. How do you do that outside of meditation? You can do that through movement, a very mindful movement. So walking, swimming, weight training, but again, no podcast, no music, just yourself really focused on the present moment. You can do that with your family. You know, I'm a parent of a young kid and having a young kid is like having a little live in Zen master because they're constantly feeling all sorts of things. And if you just give yourself 45 minutes a day to say, I'm going to really just pay 100% attention to my child, to their demeanor, to their body language, that can become a meditative practice. So it are these ways of not having anything outside of yourself except an object of focus. So in the case of meditation, it's your breath. In the case of parenting, it's a child. In the case of sport, it's your movements. And then when thoughts and feelings come in, you just let them be there and go back to the thing that you're focusing on. There is gobs of modern research that shows that this works. And there are millennia of ancient wisdom traditions that show that this works. Absolutely. Which your book is filled with, which actually pleased me because there's so much that we're revisiting now that we're realizing, hey, they actually had it right, including the heart. University of Chicago researcher Joe Cacciapo's research shows that when we feel connected to other people, we actually feel good. But we also feel safe. And secure, which according to Maslow is like one of the most essential needs of humans have. And so in light of this, do you think a lot of time spent working alone and from home undermines this, you know, our feelings of groundedness? Is that helping or hurting or, or neither? Again, I, it, it kind of comes back to our earlier discussion around where this all goes. But yeah, being isolated is not good. Like there's no question about that. So if the decision is being home alone all the time, or even if it feels like forcing yourself out with other people, the research shows that the latter over time makes a lot of sense. I think particularly now in this pandemic, not knowing what new variants are going to come, how effective vaccines will be against them, there's a real reason to isolate more. And thankfully, to date, there is no real science that shows that this thing spreads outside. So yeah, it takes a little bit more effort perhaps to meet with folks outside, but I think that that's got to become a foundational practice as long as we're in this pandemic because the isolation will not work. So even if you live in a winter place, you got to bundle up, get outside, see some people. Now that's assuming a worst case scenario. A best case scenario is vaccines continue to be really effective against new variants and we can start to get on with our lives. You know, to your point, they've shown that, you know, we've got like 50, 60,000 people showing up every day, you know, in college stadiums and NFL stadiums for football games and nobody's getting sick. 
even though people are close to each other, there's no evidence that people are catching COVID in these stadiums, which I find really fascinating. So to your point about being able to go outdoors, that's an important part because I think when you're outdoors, you're in nature, but you're also a little bit safer from all this. Do you have clients uh, without naming names who are super anxious about every time they hear a new variant and this is the one that's going to kill us all? Have you met anybody like that? And what's the advice that you give to somebody who's super anxious about one of these days, it's going to take me down? It might. And that's just life. (laughs) And it's hard to confront that. Sometimes I feel anxious about that. I mean, who knows? The first thing that I say is like the best thing that you can do right now, and this is putting my public health hat on, which is what my degree was, you know, a long time ago, is like go get vaccinated, get boosted, and follow public health precautions. Could this thing evolve where it starts killing 60% of people that have it? It could. Is that likely? No. But that's always been the case. It's like you said in opening, Mark, COVID's just like brought to light that what we thought was security was often pretty illusory, that that's always been the case. You know, there's this beautiful book, and I quote a guy named George Leonard in Groundedness, who wrote this book called The Way of Aikido. And he's got this chapter about like how Aikido teaches you how to be under the sword and still find joy and be present and be focused. And he says that we're all under the sword. All the time. We don't know when you're going to have an aneurysm or a stroke or get into a car accident. So has COVID heightened risk for a period of time for many people? Absolutely. Is there always risk? That's also true. Thankfully, we live in the 21st century where we have really good tools at our disposal in science, where I think most people that can pay attention to public health advisories and follow the science, knowing that the science could change, I think you're going to be fine. Could I be wrong? Like I said, yes. So it's kind of a non-answer to your question, but the the actual answer is yes. I have come across lots of people that are extremely anxious still about COVID and for good reason. Like it's a very dangerous disease. And even at whatever the current mortality rates are, depending on your age and health status, somewhere between 0% and 10%, that's pretty high. But look at Ebola. So like shit could happen but we can't let that get in the way of completely living our lives. And like might, and I'm going on a little rant here because it's something I talk about all the time with my wife. Like, might that mean that you should change certain behaviors depending on your risk tolerance? Yes, we've changed certain behaviors because of the pandemic and we continue to. Can you shut everything down? I don't think so. And when I say, can you shut everything down? I'm not making like a political statement. I mean, in your own life. Yeah, I think that's clear. But I think it's a reminder that... We weren't going to make it out alive pre-COVID, right? I mean, none of us wants to accelerate our demise, but I think what you said was actually pretty accurate. So thank you for that. So one other thing in the book, especially that caught my attention and the audience will understand why in a minute, that I wanted to talk to you about. Famous Buddhist teacher Jack Kornfield said, compassion arises when the jewel of the mind rests in the lotus of the heart. And to that point, you say, if any of us is to be successful in transitioning to a grounded life, we'd be wise to situate our minds in our hearts. So since this is the Lead from the Heart podcast, this is especially interesting to me, and I hope to everyone listening. So tell us what you mean specifically, your interpretation of that quote. I love that quote. 
in my interpretation of it is the mind is highly rational and it problem solves and it can deconstruct things into their component parts and make incredible decisions. The mind gave us vaccines. The heart feels and it is soft and it responds to art and to music and to the ineffable, things that we cannot put into words, that we cannot neatly divide. One without the other is only half the game. But when you combine those two things, to me, that is true power to affect change, to lead others, to lead yourself. That's the essential philosophy of this podcast, my friends. So it was really cool to read that. And truthfully, for as long as I've been marinating in this philosophy, I've never seen that quote before. Oh, it's a great quote. Are you familiar with Jack Cornfield? I am. I am. Yeah, so it came from his book. I want to say it came from a book called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. That's a title that I don't know would have attracted my attention, so maybe that's why I've never seen it before. But I'll look for it, so thank you. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here, and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. Hi, everyone. So much thoughtful work goes into producing every one of these Lead from the Heart podcast episodes. Mark reads his guest books cover to cover, invests a great amount of time in thinking of questions that will uncommonly inform you, and then ensures that each show is edited to perfection. That kind of attention to detail is rare and is yet another reason why Mitel Networks is so proud to be the sponsor. On behalf of Mitel, we thank you for listening and invite you to learn more about them at Mitel.com. That's M-I-T-E-L dot com. So, Brad, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from our conversation and we ask our guests a series of quick answer questions with the intention of learning more about them personally, meaning you, your interests, your influences, life philosophy, and we call it the heartbeat round for obvious reasons. So now it's your turn. And when you hear each question, do your best, I'll say, to give us an instinctive answer or, in other words, answer in a heartbeat. You ready to play? All right. Pressure's on. Let's do it. There you go. The grand lesson you believe the COVID pandemic came here to teach us. Compassion. Your synonym for the word heart. Quality. An ancient text or spiritual book you encourage everyone to read. The Pali Canon, translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. That's a new one to me. Something important you specifically learned in the process of writing your book. Go slow to go fast. The quality you admire most in other people. Presence. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Deadlift. Let me be clear. Deadlift is like a metaphor for just like pushing your body and going after a goal that is physical. I think that's so important and so in our nature. Single best way you keep yourself grounded. Community. Prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true. Doing real things in the world will be more rare and more important. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Meditation practice. One lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. Be kind to yourself. Greatest coaching advice you've ever personally received. It's okay to have some ego and you don't have to judge yourself if you do. Cool. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Love. (laughs) (laughs) No no one's ever said that before, actually. That's funny. Craftspeople, people that care deeply about their work, which to me is love. And that's why I said love. We're all with you on that. You said you didn't think you'd be able to do this quickly, but you did them quickly. And I'm telling you, 90% of my guests have not been able to achieve that. So well done. Bravo, sir. 
Before you go, I'd like to give you the floor. We always do this. And really for the purpose of just asking it after an hour together, is there anything that we didn't get to talk about that's in your book or anything that you just think in the context of everything we've been discussing that you really want our audience thinking about long after this podcast is over? I think the only thing that I'd add is it's so important, particularly for leaders listening, to play the long game. What feels like it will last forever in any given moment, week, day, month, even year, looking back on it decades later, it often feels like just a speck of time. And I think that when we get caught in really challenging situations, when we start to feel unmoored, the opposite of grounded, zooming out and remembering that we're playing the long game, just that mindset shift helps us to immediately become wiser, more kind to ourselves, more grounded, and take more productive action. So as I like to say, the goal is the path and the path is the goal. And the only way to walk the path is to fall off, get back up, get on it, fall off, get back up, get on it. And you do that your whole life. And if you're lucky, the interval between getting back up and on it and falling off gets a little bit longer each time. But that's it. Like, that's what we're doing here. And hopefully you choose good goals to walk towards. And that's the game. I love the reference to the long game. Coincidentally, Dory Clark is depending upon the order that we end up choosing here, she's coming on right before you or right after you. And her book is called The Long Game. And so you've just emphasized the point that I completely agree with. And she speaks brilliantly too, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Brad, thank you so very much. This is a really, really interesting conversation on behalf of my audience. Thanks for making time for us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Clearly, you've prepared well. And as I said, I feel like I'm talking to a kindred spirit. So this was a mutual pleasure. And uh, listeners, thanks for giving us an hour or so of your time. And if you like the conversation, I do hope that you pick up the book, The Practice of Groundedness. So thanks, y'all. There you go. Very good. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. If you're planning a live or virtual meeting with your team anytime soon, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd keep me in mind as one of your keynote speakers. And that means anywhere in the world when in-person meetings resume, which I hope is very soon. As this is the very first episode where we've had a sponsor, I'd like to thank the employees and customers of Mitel Networks for joining us for the very first time. And I want to thank my team, including Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Susan DeRoche, and my producer, Eric Oz. My thanks as always go to you both for listening to our show and for introducing it to others. And finally, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.